Father, what a joy it's been to be among your people uh, this day. Lord, the fellowship that uh, we have had with one another is uh, truly precious. We thank you for that. We thank you for the fellowship that we have with you through the merits of your Son. And Lord, in this final session, we pray that, uh, that we, would, we would learn your word just a little bit better. We would, we would learn how to give an answer for the hope that is within us and that we would, we would indeed contend earnestly for the faith once delivered unto the saints. So Father, we thank you. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you have made a way for us to be redeemed to yourself. May this be a time of equipping for the saints. And even as, uh, as we conclude this session, towards the end of the session, as your gospel goes out, we pray that your Holy Spirit would do the work that only he can do. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, our final session is entitled, The Hurt of Healing. And whereas the issues that we've looked at already are certainly more heretical from a theological standpoint, uh, healing is something that uh, people are very familiar with. We, we all need healing ourselves, or one day we will. We have a loved one who does need healing, and uh, the prosperity preachers will often say that healing is the dinner bell. Healing is the dinner bell. In other words, it is the promise of physical healing that really gets people flocking to these churches. If you've ever wondered how it is that these churches are so large, Lakewood Church just down the road is so large, and, and these prosperity churches are huge, their conferences are massive, and, and when they go overseas, for example, when Benny Hinn goes overseas, when he goes to Africa and, and um, uh, Central and South America, the crowds are often in the hundreds of thousands, sometimes approaching a million people. And that is not an exaggeration. And so this, this movement is huge, and people are not flocking to these churches. They're not flocking to these conferences, to these crusades, to hear the gospel of repentance. They're flocking because, not because they want to serve the Savior, but because they want to feast on what they are being told is on the master's table. They, they want the goodies they want prosperity and they want healing. And this movement is the face of Christianity in so much of the world today. Word of faith along with Roman Catholicism. You combine word of faith and Roman Catholicism and you've got the vast, vast, vast majority of Christianity around the world. And uh, often there's a, there's a lot of overlap between the two, an overlap between Roman Catholicism and word of faith. There's a lot of mixing in there. And so... Um, we do indeed have our work cut out for us as we engage these false teachers. But this session, we will talk about healing, physical healing. Is it always God's will? Of course, the faith preachers say, yes, that it is. Benny Hinn says this. He promises to heal all, everyone, any whatsoever, everything, all our diseases. That means not even a headache, sinus problem, not even a toothache, nothing. No sickness should come your way. God heals all your diseases. Joseph Prince, in his book, Destined to Reign, says this, You are destined to reign in life. You are called by God to be a success, to enjoy wealth, to enjoy health, and to enjoy a life of victory. When you reign in life, you reign over sin, over poverty, over every curse, 
and over every sickness and disease. The faith preachers make no bones about it. You should never be sick because we have supposedly been delivered from all of the effects of the curse of the fall. We should never be sick. Watch this video clip from Gloria Copeland. You could take that one psalm right there and you could do away with the tradition that says, Lord, if it be thy will, heal him. Don't even bother to pray for me if you're going to pray that. If you don't know enough about the Word of God to know it's God's will to heal, you can't pray the prayer of faith, and so you might as well just stay home. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that mercy is not her predominant spiritual gift. She has no spiritual gift, by the way. But if you begin with the premise that it is always God's will for a person to be healed, and a person prays for that healing for days, weeks, months, years, some people for decades, but the healing does not come, then the question must be asked, whose fault is it? By definition, it cannot be God's fault because he's perfect. So the only other one to whom to look is the one who is sick. It's his fault. It's her fault because they don't have enough faith, have some secret unconfessed sin in his or her life, or maybe that person... Uh, hasn't given enough money to the ministry, hasn't sown enough seed so they can reap a harvest, or maybe that person's not even saved. Not even saved. Watch this from Kenneth Copeland. Well, I don't understand why God healed them and he won't heal me. Could it be? by some stretch of the imagination. Oh, probably not, but could it be? That is your fault, not God's. <laughs> oh, yeah. Say it. Oh, yeah. lest there be any doubt as to their position. Again, dear ones, if you begin with the premise that healing is always God's will, and a person prays for that healing, but the healing does not come, then you can hem-haul around it all day long, you can wordsmith it as much as you want to, but the fault always lies squarely at the foot of the sick believer. There's no other conclusion which one can draw. If you are sick, it is your fault, your lack of faith, your unconfessed sin, your lack of giving, tithing, or maybe you're not saved. Maybe you're not saved. Watch this video clip from Jan Crouch. Jan Crouch is now the widow of Paul Crouch. Jan and Paul Crouch, founders and presidents of uh, TBN. Jan Crouch claims that she was healed of cancer back in the year 2003. In reality, Jan Crouch had treatment for her cancer and surgery for her cancer, but she says that Jesus healed her, and she says that one day after her healing, she was thanking Jesus for her healing, and Jesus had a very interesting response to Jan Crouch. Watch this. One day I was in my prayer garden, and I was just thanking him. I just said, Jesus, I just thank you. I just thank you 
that you are the greatest healer. You are the greatest everything. And I thank you, thank you, thank you. And he said to me, no, Jan, thank you for receiving my gift. Now, I know it's a little bit difficult to take anything seriously that comes from someone who looks like that. You were all thinking it. You know you were. But aside from that, dear ones, the very notion that Jesus would thank her for anything. Friends, Jesus owes us nothing. We owe him everything. And any person that would say that Jesus thanked him or Jesus thanked her does not know the Jesus of the Bible. Jan Crouch does not know the Jesus of the Bible. She may know a Jesus that she has created after her own image, but she does not know the Jesus of Scripture. So are there any Bible verses to which they would appeal that substantiate their doctrine that it is always God's will for us to be physically healed? Are there any proof texts? Well, there are a few. They look at a few of these verses, and I would like us to look at a few, Adam, a few of them. Uh, we don't have time to look at all of them, but we'll look at some of the more prominent ones. One of them is a verse that is beloved not only by the prosperity preachers, but a lot of non-charismatics as well. It may be the most beloved verse in all of the Old Testament, and we all know it, don't we? Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a future and a hope. The prosperity preachers take this verse, and they say, see, right there, God has plans to prosper us. There's prosperity, health and wealth. Now, non-charismatic word faith people may not take it to the same extent that the prosperity preachers do, but we still like this verse, don't we? Uh, we still like to make this our life verse. A lot of people will have Jeremiah 29, 11 inscribed on their Bible covers. I saw one lady who had Jeremiah 29, 11 tattooed on her arm. I can't tell you how many church signs I have seen with Jeremiah 29, 11 out on the church signs. Be very careful in making Jeremiah 29, 11 your life verse. Now, the question is, is what does this verse mean? Not, what does this verse mean to you? If you are ever in a Bible study class or a Sunday school class and your leader, the Sunday school teacher, Bible study leader, asks that question, what does this verse mean to you? You know you're in trouble. You know that your leader doesn't know what he or she is talking about. That's, that's a question you never want to hear asked in a Bible study class. What does this verse mean to you? Dear friends, it does not matter what the verse means to you. It does not matter what the verse means to me. What matters is, is what does it mean? What does it mean? Every verse in the Bible has but one meaning. One meaning. Now, a number of verses in Scripture may have multiple possible applications. You know, love your neighbor as yourself. What does it mean? It means to love your neighbor as yourself. How can we apply that verse? Any number of different ways. But it's only got one meaning. So the question is, what is the meaning of Jeremiah 29, 11? Well, to know the meaning, we need to look at it in context. What's the context? Well, this was written to Jews in Babylonian exile. 
Raise your hand if you are a Jew and you find yourself in Babylonian exile. Nobody? No Jews here in Babylonian exile today? Huh. Well, then it wasn't written to us, then was it? Well, why were the Jews in Babylonian exile? The Jews were in Babylonian exile because God had given them instructions to leave their land fallow every seventh year, but for a period of 490 years, the Jews had not done this. And so you do the math on this, 490 divided by 7 is 70. God put the Jews in Babylonian exile for 70 years. 70 years. That's a long time. That's the vast majority of a person's life. And so what God was saying to the Jews through the prophet Jeremiah, he was saying, look, Jews, look, Israel, I gave you an instruction. You've been ignoring it for 490 years. My patience has run out. Now you're going into Babylonian exile. You're going to be in captivity for 70 years. It's a long time. The vast majority of a person's life. But, God says, I have not forgotten you, Israel. I still have plans for you. Plans not to harm you, but to prosper you, to give you a future and a hope. So this was written to the Jews in Babylonian exile, Babylonian captivity. It was not written to us. So we have to be very careful in applying this verse to ourselves. Now, is there... Is there something that we can learn from this verse? Uh, yes, there is. Does God have plans for us? Yes, he does. Does God have plans to prosper us? Depends on what you mean by prosper. How many times have we heard the gospel presented this way? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Is that true? Yes. In and of itself, it is true. God does love us, and he does have wonderful plans for our lives. God had a wonderful plan for Stephen's life. The wonderful plan that God had for Stephen's life was to be stoned. God had a wonderful plan for Peter's life. The wonderful plan that God had for Peter's life was to be crucified upside down. God had a wonderful plan for the Apostle Paul's life. The wonderful plan that God had for the Apostle Paul's life was to be shipwrecked, stoned, imprisoned, beaten, ultimately beheaded. Sometimes what God deems as wonderful may not always seem so wonderful to us. Sometimes God is most glorified in us when we suffer, when we are persecuted. And yet through the suffering, through the persecution, through the trials, we remain faithful to Christ and grow in Christ remain faithful to him, and in so doing, we glorify God. Sometimes God is most glorified in us, not when we have everything that we want, but when we are suffering, when we are persecuted. So be very careful in making Jeremiah 29, 11 your life first. And also, think about this. Go on. A genetically... Sorry. <laughs> There's a item here that's missing on my think about this Jeremiah 29 11 Jeremiah 29 11 was a corporate promise to the nation of Israel don't you imagine that there were a lot of Jews who were born in that captivity 
after the captivity began and died before the captivity ended? You better believe it, a whole bunch of them. They were born in the captivity, died before the captivity was over. They never saw the fulfillment of Jeremiah 29:11. You can't individualize a corporate promise. Okay? You can't you can't do that. You couldn't even if you had been alive at the time that this was written, you couldn't individualize it. It wasn't for individuals. It was for the nation of Israel. Nation of Israel. Another one of their pr favorite proof texts is 3 John 2. 3 John 2. This is almost like the gold standard of the prosperity gospel. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in good health, even as thy soul prospers. Watch this from Joyce Meyer. 3 John 2 says, Beloved, I pray that you might prosper in every way and that your body might keep well, even as I know your soul prospers and keeps well. Now that's a very wonderful scripture. I pray that you would prosper in every way. So he talks about prosperity. He says, I would that you prosper and be in health. And be in health. So we see right there that God wants us to be healthy. Can everybody say, God wants me to be healthy? Well, you can say it, but that's not what that verse means. John was writing a letter to his friend Gaius, and you would see Gaius's name in the first verse of this short little book of 3 John. And John opens his letter in much the same way that you and I would open a letter or an email, as the case is nowadays, that we write to one of our friends. Basically, John is saying this, Dear Gaius, I hope that this finds you doing well. Friends, that's all in the world he's saying. This is not a doctrinal statement. This is not a statement of, of theology. This is not a blanket promise for guaranteed money and guaranteed healing. Not at all. It was simply a common greeting in a letter. And in a little bit different form, it remains a common greeting in letters today. And so the prosperity preachers know this, but they don't want you to know it because it just happens to fit their theology. Watch this video clip from Joseph Prince. Joseph Prince says, if you don't like sickness, well, then you can just bind it. Because whatever you bind on earth, he says, will be bound in heaven. Watch this from Joseph Prince. Are you all ready for God's word? Let's go right into God's word. Remember that healing is provided for us. But until you get mad, you know, and you say that, no, I, I'm not going to allow the devil to, all right? Don't forget what Jesus said. Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. In the rabbinical uh, teaching, all right, in the rabbinical idea, the rabbis tell us that, that uh, even the rabbis, they are given keys where they, they permit some things to happen. And they don't permit some things to happen. Well, Jesus has, has even greater keys, amen, the key of David. And the thing is that that word there doesn't say what God binds, what God disallowed, all right? Then it will be disallowed on earth. No, God says what you prohibit, what you bind, what you disallow, I will disallow in heaven. Whatever you allow, I will allow in heaven. So those that believe in the doctrine, all right, God wants some of us sick and all that. Usually it's not them, it's others. It's not their family, it's always others. Those who believe that God wants some of us sick, they never include themselves.
So the reasoning is that if you are sick, then all you have to do is bind it, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And he takes that from Matthew chapter 18. Well, let's look at Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 15. This is where he gets it. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So this passage has absolutely nothing to do with physical healing. It's got everything to do with church discipline. Church discipline? What in the world is that? Very few churches do church discipline. Do you know this is the first commandment that Jesus gave to his church? First commandment that he gave to his church. And yet the vast, vast majority, probably less than one-tenth of one percent of evangelical churches take this passage seriously. Jesus says if your brother sins, you go to him in private. You confront him in his, in his sin. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother. In other words, wonderful. Praise the Lord. You have won your brother. He has repented. That's what church discipline is designed to do. You go to him in private, and if he repents, wonderful. Don't talk about it anymore. It's done. Okay, don't go to Sunday school the next Sunday morning, and when the Sunday school teacher asks, does anybody have any prayer requests or praise reports? Oh, I got a praise report. I went to Billy Bob, and I confronted him in his sin, and he repented. Let me tell you what he repented of. No, it's done. Don't talk about it anymore. But if he doesn't listen to you, then Jesus says, take one or two more with you. And you go back again. And if he listens to you, wonderful. You have won your brother. Don't talk about it anymore. But if he refuses to listen to you when you take one or two more with you, then you tell it to the church. Oh, you mean you get up on Sunday morning and you tell it to the whole church? That's right. That's what it says. Oh, well, that's not very polite. Not socially. God thinks it's polite. God thinks it's right. He's the one who gave us the instruction. If you want to get an idea of just how seriously your church takes the Word of God, ask the leadership, what do you do with Matthew chapter 18? What do you do with that? You take that seriously? Because you know what? It's, this does goes against uh, the, the social norms and the mores. It's hard. You know, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. But this is just as much a commandment to the church as is communion, as is believer's baptism. So if you want to get an idea of how seriously your church takes God's word, ask them what they do with this. If he refuses to listen to the church, Jesus says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. You put him out of the church. You mean you kick him out of the body? That's right. That's what you do. And you know why? Because he has proven himself to be an unbeliever. A genuine believer can be in sin, but when confronted 
with the truth of God's word, and when these steps are followed, a genuine believer is going to repent. He's going to bend the knee, and he's going to repent. And so if he doesn't repent, even after all of these steps are followed, you know you're dealing with an unbeliever. You're dealing with a false convert, and so you put him out of the church. Church discipline is designed to bring a sinning Christian to repentance. But if he does not repent, that person is put outside of the church, and it's designed in that case to purify the church, protect the flock. This has absolutely nothing to do with cancer and arthritis. And when Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth, he doesn't actually say, will be bound in heaven. The Greek tense is, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying, whatever action is taken, heaven agrees. If you follow these steps, whatever action you come to, whether the person repents, he's welcomed back into the fellowship, or he does not repent and he's kicked out of the church, heaven agrees with you. Whatever you bind on earth, in other words, if he does not repent, he's still bound in his sins, shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth, if he repents, he's freed from that sin, shall have been loosed in heaven. Heaven agrees. This has absolutely nothing to do with being healed from cancer and arthritis. Absolutely nothing to do with that at all. This from, quote-unquote, Apostle Frederick Casey Price. Fred Price says this, How can you glorify God in your body when it doesn't function right? How can you glorify God? How can he get glory when your body doesn't even work? What makes you think the Holy Ghost wants to live inside of a body where he can't see out through the windows and he can't hear with the ears? What makes you think the Holy Spirit wants to live inside of a physical body where the limbs and the organs and the cells do not function right? And what makes you think he wants to live in a temple where he can't see out of the eyes, he can't walk with the feet, he can't move with the hand? The only eyes that he has that are in the earth realm are the eyes that are in the body. If, he's, if he can't see out of them, then God's going to be limited. How cruel. So Frederick K.C. Price is saying, if you're sick, what makes you think the Holy Spirit of God wants to live inside of you? I can tell you one person the Holy Spirit of God is not living inside of, and it's Apostle Frederick K.C. Price. You see how cruel these prosperity preachers are. If you're sick, it's your fault. And by the way, if you're sick, you're probably not saved. What makes you think God would want to live inside of a sick body? One day, these false teachers will have to stand before a holy God, and they will have to give an account for what they are doing to the sick, to the hurting, and to the desperate, and to the widows. And they will have to account, give an account for what they are doing to the gospel of Christ. Foundational to the faith preacher's teaching that it is always God's will to be healed is their teaching that physical healing is provided for in the atonement. The atonement, of course, is the word that we give to the work that Jesus did on the cross. Now, we saw earlier today that the prosperity preachers do not believe that Jesus paid for our sins on the cross. They believe he paid for our sins down in hell. But we looked at that this morning. Well, watch this from Andrew Womack. Jesus placed your and my sickness and diseases, infirmities, upon Jesus, and he bore them 2,000 years ago. If he already paid for your healing, how can you doubt 
that you are healed. And so the reasoning is Jesus has paid for our healing and therefore we should not have to be sick. And they all appeal to Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, which says this, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And the faith preachers look at these two words that I have highlighted here, griefs and sorrows, and they'll say that another way to render these two words is as sickness and pain, respectively. And you know what? They're right. Like many words in Hebrew, these two words have multiple possible renderings. So how do you know which rendering is correct? You know which rendering is correct by the context of the passage. So let's look at the context of the passage. It becomes quite clear just by reading the very next verse. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. So very clearly, the primary context of Isaiah 53 is not talking about physical healing. It's talking about spiritual healing. Not healing from sickness and disease, but healing from sin. We see that from these two words, transgressions and iniquities. In fact, read Isaiah chapter 53. Beginning in chapter 52, the whole context is talking about sin, transgression, he bore the sins of many. The whole thing is talking about iniquity, sin. It's not talking about cancer and arthritis. That is not the primary context. Not the primary context. So, what is the answer to our question? Is physical healing provided for in the atonement? I might surprise you with the answer. Yes. Yes, it absolutely is provided for in the atonement. Dear friends, the reason that I walk on crutches, the reason that I'm crippled, is a result of sin. Not my personal sin, but the sin of Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve sinned and they ate of that fruit, whatever that fruit was, we don't know that it was an apple. That's just what the coloring books would have us believe. We have no idea what it was. It could have been a pomegranate. You know, we don't know. But when they ate of that fruit, sin entered the world, so did sickness and disease and ultimately death, physical and spiritual death. And so, yes, the reason that I walk on crutches, that's a result of sin. The reason many of you are wearing eyeglasses right now, that's a result of sin. Not your personal sin, but the sin of Adam and Eve. Next time you catch a cold, you can blame Adam and Eve for that. It's just one of the consequences of living in a fallen world. And so when Jesus came and he died on the cross, he paid for our sins. He also paid for all of the consequences of those sins, one of which is sickness and disease. So yes, physical healing is provided for in the atonement. But here's where the faith preachers get it very, very wrong. Not all of the benefits of the atonement are promised to be fully realized this side of heaven. Okay? Not all of the benefits of Jesus' atonement are promised to be realized this side of heaven. Some of the benefits of Jesus' atonement we will not realize until the other side of heaven. In healing from sickness and disease, 
is one of those benefits. Another example of this is a glorified body. A glorified body is also provided for in the atonement. Raise your hand if you've got your glorified body. Nobody here has their glorified body? Why not? It's provided for in the atonement. It's not promised to be realized here. Dear ones, when we die and go to heaven, we're not going to take our sickness and disease with us. No more cancer, no more arthritis, no more muscular dystrophy, no more multiple sclerosis. But you know what? When we die and go to heaven, for all of us who are in Christ, I really don't think it's even going to cross our minds that we no longer have our sickness and disease. I really don't think we're even going to give it a second thought. And you know why? Dear ones, we will have far better things to think about. We will be in the presence of Christ. We will worship Christ for all of eternity. Perfect worship of Christ. Fellowship with Christ. Service to Christ. We will be in the presence of the King of glory. We will be in the presence of the one who spoke the universe into existence, dear ones. I don't think it's even going to cross our minds that we no longer have our sickness and disease. I really don't think we're even going to give it a second thought. We're going to have better things to think about. Sometimes we have such an earthly view of heaven, don't we? How many times have we heard of heaven being described as a great big family reunion? That's what Don Piper says. Don Piper says he's been to heaven. He says it's heaven's many things, but it's, he says above all, it's the greatest family reunion of all. Really? That's your idea of heaven? A family reunion? You had not been to heaven. Will we be reunited with our loved ones who preceded us in death? Yes, we will. If they were in Christ when they died, yes. But you know what? We're going to be reunited with them and we will join them in what they are doing right now already. We will join them in worshiping Christ, enjoying Christ for all of eternity. Dear friends, He is the joy and the glory of heaven. He is who makes heaven, heaven. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. He is who makes heaven, heaven. Do I need to stop or keep going? Okay. What of the biblical record? Can we look through the Bible and find examples of people who were faithful servants of God and yet did not walk in perfect health? Absolutely. Trophimus was left sick at Miletus. 
Epaphroditus, sick to the point of death. The Apostle Paul encouraged Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach in his frequent ailments. Now, I find this one very interesting. Notice that the Apostle Paul did not write to Timothy when he heard about his stomach issues and frequent ailments. Notice Paul did not write to Timothy and say, uh, Timothy, go see a faith healer and be sure you sow a seed into his ministry so you can reap a harvest. Take a little wine for your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now I find this interesting on yet another level. The Apostle Paul wrote this about the year A.D. 64. About A.D. 64. Back up 10 years to the year A.D. 54. What was going on in the year A.D. 54? Well, the events of Acts chapter 19 were going on. What's happening in Acts chapter 19? Extraordinary miracles of healing. So extraordinary that even handkerchiefs and aprons were being taken forth from the Apostle Paul, delivered to sick people at distances, and God was healing the sick through the agents of these handkerchiefs and aprons remotely at distances. Extraordinary miracles of healing going on in the year AD 54. Fast forward 10 years to the year AD 64. No handkerchiefs and aprons going forth from the Apostle Paul. What changed? Something pretty significant changed, did it not? Could it be that even in that 10-year span, even while the apostles were still alive, that the apostolic gifts, tongues, interpretation of tongues, miracles, physical healing, had already begun to fade away, had already begun to pass out of operation. Two years later, the Apostle Paul writing 2 Timothy, it said that he left Trophimus sick at Miletus. Paul left him sick. Paul was with him, and he left him sick. Interesting internal evidence that even by that time, the apostolic gifts had already begun to fade away. It already begun to pass out of operation. Interesting internal evidence for cessationism. As I said earlier, I do believe that God still heals people today physically, but only when it is his sovereign will to do so. But that is not the same thing as the apostolic gift of healing. Apples and oranges, two totally different things. Job. Job is the 800-pound theological gorilla sitting in the living room of the prosperity preachers, none of whom want to admit is there. Job's a problem for the faith preachers because here you have a man who is upright and righteous. doesn't mean that he was sinless, but he had done nothing really of deserving of all the things that happened to him, and yet God still allowed Satan to come and, and to strike from Job everything that he had. His possessions destroyed his family, dead. His own health, deteriorated. Job suffered unimaginably. Job's a problem for the prosperity preachers. So what do they do with Job? It's hard to ignore an entire book out of the Bible. So you know what they do to Job? They turn the tables on Job. They say that all these calamities fell upon Job because they were all results of his negative confessions. Job spoke negative words, and he brought all of these things upon himself. Do they really teach that? 
Yes, they do. This from Joyce Meyer. She says, For the thing which I greatly fear comes upon me, and that of which I am afraid befalls me. Fear is a terrible emotion, a self-fulfilling one. Job had fears concerning his children and finally reached a place in his life where he saw his fears coming to pass. The Bible says it will be unto us as we believe. Matthew 9.29 totally takes that out of context. That principle works in the negative as well as the positive. So Job spoke negative words and he enacted these universal laws of attraction and he attracted bad things to himself. Job tapped into the dark side of the force. Completely misses the point of the book of Job. Misses it entirely. Dear friends, do you know what the point of the book of Job is? The sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. God can do whatever he wants to do. And sometimes that means making us sick. Do you believe that? Do you believe God makes people sick? Well, if God doesn't make people sick, then somebody needs to inform him because he seems to think that he does. The Lord said unto Moses, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him dumb or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Friends, that's God talking there. I don't know how you get around that. Pretty clear, is it not? Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him dumb or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? God speaking again. Deuteronomy, see now that I, I am he. There is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. Put that verse in your prosperity pipe and smoke it. Sometimes God makes people sick. Now, sometimes we make ourselves sick, don't we? I mean, if you lay around all day long and you eat nothing but ding-dongs and Twinkies and Ho-Hos and Little Debbie Fudge Creams and you drink nothing but Dr. Peppers and you go through three or four packs of cigarettes a day, uh, don't be surprised if you have some health problems. But sometimes we get sick just because we get sick. We live in a fallen world and people just get sick. Sometimes God makes people sick. Why would he do that? To watch us suffer? No. But sometimes God makes people sick to sanctify us and to glorify himself. To glorify himself. In everything, ultimately, everything that God does is about his glory. Is about his glory. A few years ago, I met a man named Rich, lives in Long Island, New York. Rich was born able-bodied. There was nothing wrong with him physically. Uh, and at age 19, Rich got saved. He was converted at age 19. And then just a few years later, in his early 20s, Rich had a motorcycle accident, and it left him paralyzed. No use of his legs, very, very limited use of his arms. And Rich lived with his brother and his sister-in-law, brother's wife, neither of whom were believers, but Rich was. Every Sunday morning, Rich would ask his brother and sister-in-law to get him up out of bed. They would get him up out of bed, bathe him, dress him, and they would put him in his electric wheelchair 
and Rich would drive his electric wheelchair five miles one way to church every single Sunday. And he never missed. Even when it was raining, they put a poncho over him. And he drove his electric wheelchair five miles one way to church in the rain. And the only thing that would keep Rich from going to church was if it was snowing. And his wheelchair just won't go in the snow. Other than that, he was there. The pastor told me, he said, Rich is the most faithful church member I've got. He had bumper stickers on the back of his wheelchair with scripture verses on them. He was quite literally a rolling testimony for Christ, full of joy. Friends, God is glorified in that. Don't you know that all of those people who saw this man in his wheelchair driving five miles one way to church, scripture on his wheelchair, smile on his face, don't you know that God was glorified in that? And yet we've got prosperity preachers today like Joel Osteen telling us we should have our best life now. Joel Osteen tells a story about how one day he and his wife Victoria were trying to find a good parking spot at the, at the shopping center. And, but all the good parking spots were taken, you see. But they just kept believing God for a good parking spot. And so they were just driving around circles in the, in the parking lot. And wouldn't you know it, they were coming down an aisle of cars and the car in the very front spot pulled out just in time, drove away for Joel and Victoria to come in, and they got that good parking spot up front. And Joel Osteen says, friends, that's the favor of God. Really? That's your idea of the favor of God? Tell that to Rich. Tell that to our brothers and sisters in Christ in other parts of the world right now. Tell that to our brothers and sisters in Christ in Iran, in Syria, North Korea. Tell them the favor of God is getting a good parking spot at the mall in the United States of America. Are you kidding me? The prosperity preachers have no concept of the gospel. None. No understanding of the gospel. But Rich does. Many of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, right now, they do. The gospel is not about our comfort, dear ones. It's about our surrender. It's about our regeneration. It's about our service to God. And oftentimes that service comes in times of persecution, in times of suffering. Elisha had a double portion anointing of the great prophet Elijah, yet we read in 2 Kings 13 that Elisha was fallen sick of his sickness whereof he died. Dear friends, it is a matter of biblical record that not everyone who loved the Lord and served him faithfully walked in perfect divine health. It's not a matter of opinion. It's not up for debate. It's simply a matter of biblical record. Does God heal people today? Yes, he does but only when it is his sovereign will to do so. And I think it's much more the exception than it is the rule. It's not a common thing, but on occasion, yes, he does. Does God always heal people today? No, he does not. 
He wasn't doing it in the days of the Bible, and he's not doing it today either. According to the prosperity preachers, are there requirements to receive your healing from God? Yes, according to the faith preachers, one of the requirements you must meet, show me the money. You better sow that seed. Sow that seed so you can reap a harvest. Watch this from Joyce Meyer. Do I believe that God wants to bless us? Yes. But when you go to the conferences, you ask people to give money. So yeah. You say, do it cheerfully. Yeah. Because As the Bible says, give and it shall be given unto you. See, giving is a major part of the whole Christian doctrine. But do you believe that if someone gives money to the ministry, right. that more will come back to them? Yes. Absolutely. I think that's what they mean by prosperity gospel. Yes. No, but you worry at all that, that sometimes your message will be heard by someone in the most dire circumstances. It's a sort of roulette wheel, a sort of gamble with God. Okay, well, I can't pay the rent, but I'll give it to Joyce and we'll see what happens. Do you worry at all that well, that I, happens? I totally know. I don't worry about that. Well, no, she totally doesn't worry about that. I'm sure she doesn't, but she should. Because right now, as we sit here tonight, there are people all around the world who are watching Christian television, watching TBN, watching Daystar, watching the Inspiration Network, watching these false teachers, whether it's Benny Hinn or Rod Parsley or Kenneth Copeland or, or Marcus, and, Marcus Lamb at, at, at Daystar, promising people that if, if you'll send in some money, God will heal you. You have a sick child, sow a seed. Your spouse has cancer, sow a seed. Send me some money. God will heal you. Send me some money. God will save your marriage. Send me some money. God will get you out of debt. It's one-stop shopping. Everything that's going wrong in your life can be fixed with just a little seed or a lot of seed. If you have a big miracle, you need a lot of seed for that. Watch this video clip from Rod Parsley. Rod Parsley wants you to sow a seed into his ministry. Very specific seed, $54.17. Now, why $54.17? Well, based off of Isaiah 54, verse 17, of course. Silly goose. You didn't know that? There's a battle raging, and it's raging right now, a fierce all-out attack against you, against everything of great value in your life. But my dear, dear friend, your commander-in-chief has full supremacy, absolute authority, and he's decreed and declared that no weapon formed against you shall prosper. On this broadcast, you're about to discover how to receive for yourself his miraculous anointing of provision and protection. Stay right where you are. I'm Rod Parsley. And I'm going to take you at your word. I'm going to stand up in faith and I'm going to sow an Isaiah 54, 17 seed of $54.17. Let's go to the phone. Do it right now. Go to the phone. Right now, this is a moment of faith that may never, ever, ever be repeated again. But God is saying, if you're hearing this word, take hold of it. Seize this moment. Claim this word right now as your own word and say, 
God, that's me. That's my family. That's my business. That's my ministry. That's my church. God, those are my children. That's my marriage. So I feel the adversary releasing his stranglehold. Are you going to your phone? $54.17. Are you going to your phone right now? Are you going to your phone? Are you going to your phone right now? Ooh, there's a ooh, there's a heavy anointing here. I just feel it. I don't, I don't think I've ever felt the anointing as strongly as I do right now. You don't want to miss this time of anointing. It may never come again. You need to hurry up. You need to go to that phone. You know why they want you to hurry up and go to your phone? Because they know that if you actually stop and think, you might not go to your phone. And you might not sow your $54.17 seed into Rod Parsley's ministry. Well, let's be fair to Rod Parsley, shall we? Let's look at Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon that is formed against you will prosper. Wow. Well, it does say that, doesn't it? No, and every tongue that accuses you in judgment, you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. Huh. Well, it, it does say that. And unlike Jeremiah 29, 11, this verse seems to have a rather universalistic, uh, speaking of Christians, not universalism, but a, a broad application for all of us as, as Christians, does it? Because it says, this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Well, aren't we servants of the Lord? Yes. Uh, so does this apply to us? Hmm. Well, a couple of points to be made. Number one, Dear friends, there's nothing inspired about 5417. Okay? Nothing inspired about the chapter divisions and the verse numbers. The content is inspired, but the chapter divisions and the verse numbers were put in by man just to help us look things up a little bit more easily in Scripture. So there's nothing special about 5417. But what of this that says that no weapon that is formed against us will prosper? Does this apply to us? Well, it does say this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and we are God's servants, are we not? So is it true for us? Well, it's kind of like healing in the atonement. Is it guaranteed? Yes. Is it provided for? Yes. Is it promised to be realized here? No, it's not. So is it true that no weapon that is formed against God or his servants will prosper? Yes, that is true in the eschaton. When God brings all things to their appointed end, it is true that no weapon that is formed to God or his people will prosper. That is true in the eschaton. But is that necessarily true here and now? Sure doesn't seem to be. Seems to me that the nails that drove through uh, Peter's hands when he was crucified upside down, those, those weapons seem to prosper. It seems to me that the sword that was fashioned in the blacksmith shop that lopped off the head of the Apostle Paul, uh, that weapon seemed to prosper. So, yes, it is true in the eschaton, but not necessarily true here. So, sorry, Rod Parsley, it doesn't work. And by the way, verse 17 is the last verse in Isaiah chapter 54. Now, why didn't Rod Parsley just drop down one more verse? to Isaiah 55, verse 1. That would be more seed per sower, right? I mean, he'd get 84 cents more seed per sower. So he'd, he'd get more money if he just, just 
drop down one verse. Why didn't he do that? I'll show you why he didn't do it. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. That's why I didn't want you to look at the next verse, because it totally obliterates everything he was just saying. You think Rod Parsley didn't know what the next verse said? Oh, yeah, he knew. Yeah, he knew. He's a charlatan. He's a charlatan. He's a greasy snake oil salesman. My sincere apologies to all greasy snake oil salesmen out there for making such an unfortunate comparison to Rod Parsley. If you have your Bibles, look at Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21. This is the account of the widow who gave two copper coins, and we're all familiar with this story. And um, honestly, never this story never made sense to me. I don't know about you, but it, it never really made sense to me. Uh, until I heard John MacArthur preach on this passage, and then it's like the, the light came on. But I want to show you this passage. Luke chapter 21, beginning verse 1. And he, Jesus, looked up, and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them. For they all out of their surplus put into the offering... But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. And that's it. Now, the way we have most often heard this passage taught is that we should give like the widow gave. The widow should be our model in giving. We should give like the widow gave. Raise your hand if you've given like the widow gave. Has anybody done that? The widow didn't give, give most of what she had. She gave everything, everything she had. Anybody in here done that? Well, you know what? I can't raise my hand either. In fact, I don't know anybody who's done this. I don't know anybody who's given every cent they have to the quote-unquote church. And let's keep in mind that this was, this was a widow. And as a widow 2,000 years ago, she had no means of support. You know, she, had, she had no one to, to care for her. She gave every cent she had. And this is not stated in Scripture. It's just an educated guess. Not long after that, in all likelihood, she probably left there and died. Not long after that. Oh, but the widow, she gave so selflessly. Does the Bible say that? She gave out of the abundance of her heart. Did she? I don't know that she did that. The Bible doesn't say anything about her motivations for giving one way or the other. Jesus just makes an observation. He just makes a simple observation. He said that she gave more than all of them. Now, if the widow should be our model in giving, we should give like the widow gave... You know, I don't know about anybody who's done this. We've all blown it. Nobody's done this. And the widow gave everything. Do you think Jesus expects little old widows to give every cent that they have to the quote-unquote church? 
Is that what Jesus wants widows to do? No. No, the Bible has a lot to say about how we are to care for the poor and the orphans and the widows, does it not? I don't think this pleased Jesus at all. I don't think it pleased him at all. Uh, this, widow, this widow was being exploited. This widow was being told, if you want the blessings of God, if you want the favor of God, you've got to give your money. Cough it up. You want God to smile on you? You better dig deep. This widow gave everything she had. And she left there, and in all likelihood, educated guess, probably not long after that died. I don't think this pleased Jesus at all. He doesn't commend her. He doesn't say this was a good thing she did. He just makes an observation. Now, to what was she giving? Was she giving to, uh, you know, Grace Community Church of Jerusalem? Is that what she was giving to? No. She was giving to the synagogue. This was Wednesday before the Friday that Jesus was crucified. Just two days before he was crucified. And she gave every cent she had to the same religious system that in two days was going to nail Jesus to a tree. That's what she was giving to. She was giving to a religious system that was corrupt from top to bottom. And she gave it all. I don't think this pleased Christ in any way. I think it angered him. This widow was being exploited. Now, look up just a few verses. Remember, the chapter divisions aren't inspired. Look up at verse 45 of chapter 20. It says, And while all of the people were listening, he, Christ, said to the disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, love respectful greetings in the marketplaces, and chief seats in the synagogues, and places of honor at banquets. And look at verse 47. Who do what? Who devour widows' homes, and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. And then what's the very next thing that he sees? He sees a poor widow whose home was being devoured. You see how important context is. I don't think this pleased Christ at all. I think it angered him. I think this widow was being exploited. You want the blessings of God? Cough it up. You want entrance into heaven? Dig deep. She was being exploited. And the same thing that was going on 2,000 years ago, going on today. You know where these prosperity preachers get a lot of their money? You know how it is that they can afford all these Rolex watches? And how they can afford all these fancy cars and Bentleys and uh, private jets? By the way, I've been in Kenneth Copeland's hangar before. He's got, at least what I could see, he had four, four airplanes. Two of them jets. Jesse Duplantis has five of them. Jets. Creflo Dollar, earlier this year, made pretty big news. Remember that? Creflo Dollar telling his church that he wants a $65 million private jet. Wrap your mind around that for just a second. $65 million 
dollar private jet. That doesn't touch the insurance or the, the storage or the fuel or the maintenance or the pilot. I mean, that, that's just 65, 65 million. You're just, that's just getting started. Really? I could fly coach. I, heck, I could probably fly first class for the rest of my life and never approach $65 million. In fact, I know I could, just doing the numbers in my head. And he, th you know where he gets a lot of that money from? You know where a lot of that money come comes from? It comes from little widows who are sitting at home who can't get out, can't get to church. They're at home or they're in a nursing home or a retirement home, and tragically their only church is this garbage that they're watching on, on Christian television. And they're being told, if you, wanna, you want the blessing of God, write me a check. Pull out your credit card. One day, these false teachers will have to stand before a holy God, and they will have to give an account for what they are doing to the sick, to the hurting, to the desperate, to the widows, and they will have to give an account for what they are doing to the gospel of Christ. In light of that, what we just looked at in Luke 21, watch this video clip from Mike Murdoch. Watch this, Mike Murdoch. There is a widow who is watching Daystar, watching us right now. And you're sitting there and your thoughts are, wow, I wish I was young again and I wish I had a business, but I'm on a fixed income. And I don't know where I would get the $58. That's what makes it faith. That's what makes it faith. Mike Murdoch actually singling out the widows. Ooh, I, I see a widow. There's a widow watching me. And you don't know where you're going to get your $58 to sow into my ministry. You're on a fixed income. Well, that's what makes it faith. This angers me. And it should anger any child of God. This should anger us, and rightfully so. There is a place for righteous anger. One day, these false teachers will have to stand before a holy God whose holiness burns with a white, hot flame. You know, we often think of the deepest, darkest hottest part of hell being reserved for people like Adolf Hitler, Stalin, Osama bin Laden. You know, those are the really bad guys. Jack the Ripper, Adam Lanza, that guy who went and killed all those kids in the school in Connecticut a couple of years ago. Horrible, horrible. Oh, he's in hell. Make no mistake about it. Adolf Hitler's in hell. But the deepest, darkest, hottest part of hell, I would posit, is not inhabited by people like Adolf Hitler and Adam Lanza and Joseph Stalin and Osama bin Laden. 
the deepest, darkest, hottest part of hell, will be reserved for those people who had the most exposure to the truth and yet rejected it and yet used it to exploit the poor and the sick and the widows. Let not many of you desire to be teachers, my brethren, knowing that we will incur a stricter judgment. I believe the deepest, darkest, hottest part of hell will be reserved for people like Mike Murdoch, barring that God grants him repentance. It doesn't get any worse than this, dear ones. It, you can't get any lower than to use the Word of God to exploit the most vulnerable and the most desperate people among us and then for personal financial gain and then turn around and distort the gospel itself. I can't even conceive of anything in my mind that's any worse than that. These people are not Christians. According to the prosperity preachers, are there requirements for you to receive your healing? Yes. If you want to be healed, according to the prosperity preachers, you must have a right heart. Your heart must be right with God. This is what Benny Hinn told a Miracle Crusade audience in which I was attendant. This was at the first Benny Hinn Crusade I went to, actually. Benny Hinn said this, You cannot receive healing excuse me, unless your heart is right with God. Healing is easily attained when your walk with God is right. Now stop and think just for a moment and put yourself in the shoes of someone who is there and they're sick. They're in a wheelchair. They have cancer. They have a sick child. And when the show is over, they leave in the same wheelchair with the same cancer with the same sick child. Now not only do they have their illness with which to deal, now they also have to worry about their own spiritual deficiencies that there's something wrong with their walk with the Lord simply because they're sick. Simply because they are sick. Now, dear friends, I want to be careful because my, my theological you know, bent is, is hopefully it's, it's, it's engaged at least most of the time. I want to be careful and say that if someone is at a Benny Hinn crusade in search of healing, there is something wrong. That's either someone who's not truly converted or it could be a very young believer, an immature believer. Okay, so something isn't right. Something's not right there. But the point is this. If you are sick, that is not a reason to doubt your salvation. If you are crippled, that is not a reason to doubt your salvation. That is not a reason to doubt your walk with the Lord. Not at all. Not at all. Watch this from John Hagee. That's what that means. Let me tell you, sickness comes from the devil. And when you walk into a hospital room and your friend is there, a member of your family is there, you have the power to say, in the name of Jesus, I rebuke that disease and the God of heaven will heal that disease when you are right with God in heaven. John Hagee says that if you have a friend or a family member who's in the hospital, you can go into that hospital, walk into that room, and you can command that sickness to leave. And as long as you're right with God in heaven, that sickness must leave. So if the sickness doesn't leave, then guess what? There's something wrong with your walk with God. 
This was aired in March of 2010. Do you know where John Hagee was about a year and a half before this, in October of 2008? You know where John Hagee was? John Hagee was lying flat on his back on an operating table with his chest cracked open. They were doing quadruple bypass surgery on John Hagee. Why didn't he just command his arteries to clear up? Would have saved himself an awful lot of time and heartache, pardon the pun. I take no joy that John Hagee had quadruple bypass surgery, but I do find it interesting that what the faith preachers preach doesn't work for them. And if what the faith preachers preach doesn't work for them, that ought to be a clue to them. There just might be something wrong with what they're preaching. Why are they sick? Essek W. Kenyon, the grandfather of this movement, died from a tumor. Kenneth Hagin, the father of the modern word faith movement, died from heart disease. Oral Roberts, world's most famous faith healer next to Benny Hinn, died from heart disease. Rod Parsley, diagnosed with throat cancer just a few months ago. Remember Rod Parsley? He's the one that wants you to sow $54.17 into his ministry. He's the one that says he can feel your faith tugging on him. I cannot tell you how many times I have seen Rod Parsley look square into the camera lens at people out there in TV land saying, you send me money, God will heal you. You send me money, God will heal your child. This is a standard staple from Rod Parsley. Guess what? He's got throat cancer. Jan Crouch, cancer, gallbladder surgery. Nora Lamb, the faith healer that I went to see when I was a teenager, had a massive stroke in 2003, died early the next year. Friends, the faith healers get sick just like us common folk do. And if what the faith preachers preach doesn't work for them, it ought to be a clue to them. There just might be something wrong with what they're preaching. This is an interesting photograph I came across. Jesse Duplantis, Benny Hinn, and John Hagee. A lot of people think John Hagee isn't word of faith. Yeah, he is. Look at the company that he keeps. He regularly has Jesse Duplantis preach for him in his pulpit. But Benny Hinn, I want you to look at Benny Hinn, the guy in the middle. What's he got on his face? Oh, eyeglasses. Mr. Miracle himself has to wear eyeglasses. Friends, never trust a faith healer who's wearing eyeglasses. <laughs> you know, the prosperity preachers say that it's always God's will to be healed because we've been completely delivered from all of the effects of the curse. The curse of the fall should have no effect on us. Watch this from George Pearson's and Gloria Copeland. We've been talking about living in God's circle of protection. That protection belongs to us. Yes, it does. We have a covenant we of protection. We have a circle of yep, protection. Yep, we do. And we have scriptures after scripture after scripture that guarantee us that no matter where we are and no matter where we go, we are redeemed from the curse of the law. We are redeemed yes. from the curse yes. of destruction. That's Okay, so the prosperity preachers say we should always be healed because we've been completely redeemed from the curse of the law. 
the, the curse should have no effect on us anymore. Kind of like Benny Hinn, what's he got on his face? Eyeglasses. You know why he's wearing eyeglasses? It's a result of sin. And next time somebody tells you it's always God's will to be healed because we've been completely delivered from the effects of the curse, ask them this question. Okay, have you stopped aging? Because the reason we get sick is the same reason we age. The reason we cannot physically do at age 80 what we could do when we were 20, that's because we live in a fallen world. And day by day, little by little, that fallen world is taking its toll on us. And so until one of these people stops aging, they've got nothing to say to us. Ask them that. Have you stopped aging? Pull out a picture of yourself from 15 years ago. Let's take a look. Until they stop aging, they've got nothing to say to us. And you know what? I've been studying Benny Hinn for close to 20 years now. And you know what? Every year, Benny Hinn looks just a little bit older than he did the year before. According to the faith preachers, if you're not healed, are there reasons for that? Yes, according to the prosperity preachers, if you're not healed, well, it's probably because of your lack of faith. You just don't have enough faith. Watch this from Benny Hinn. My friend, hear this well. The reason people lose their healing is because they begin questioning if God really did it. We receive it by faith. We keep it by faith. Say by faith. Hind and touched his garment. Now, before she touched, verse 1 to 8 says, For she said, For she said, For she said, Say that with me. In other words, she knew. She knew that she knew that she knew she's going to get a miracle. First key, she heard. Second key, she came. Third key, she knew. When you know, you're on the way. But if you sit there and say, I'm not sure, you just lost it. What does laying your hands on a human have to do with healing? Well, really nothing. We touch people all the time, they're still sick. What he's looking for is permission. Absolutely. The power to heal is always present. But having permission to heal is held up by humanity and their lack of faith. <laughs> Hallelujah. Having permission to heal is held up by humanity in their lack of faith. Is faith required for us to receive physical healing from God? Well, dear friends, let me put it in these terms. If you are here tonight and you know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, don't let anybody tell you that you don't have enough faith to be healed. Because if you have been granted enough faith to be saved, you have certainly got enough faith to be healed. Because being saved is by far the greatest miracle. The greatest miracle is not when the blind see. It's not when the lame walk. The greatest miracle is when the dead are raised. And I'm not talking about 
physically dead. I'm talking about spiritually dead. When we are dead in our sins, dead in Adam, and God makes us alive. God saves us through Jesus Christ. He takes out our heart of stone, puts in a heart of flesh. Old things passed away, all things made new. That is the greatest miracle of all. And dear ones, if you know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, don't you let anybody ever tell you that you don't have enough faith to be healed. If you've been granted enough faith to be saved, it's a moot point. The greatest miracle has already been done in your life. And God can do with us whatever he wants to do with us. Sometimes, on occasion, that may mean healing. More often than not, it doesn't. I am not against praying for someone to be healed. Not at all. There's nothing wrong with that. On occasion, I will pray for somebody to be healed. But you know, uh, have you ever noticed that you go into almost any church, Wednesday night prayer meeting or whenever they have you know prayer meeting, and uh, people are asked for prayer requests? You know, do you have any prayer requests? Who has prayer requests? What are ninety nine percent of the prayer requests about? Healing. Somebody's sick. Somebody broke a limb. Somebody's in the hospital. Ninety nine out of a hundred of them. Again, I'm not against praying for healing, but maybe rather than spending so much time praying for healing, where are the prayer requests that are like this? Pray that God would help me to mortify my sin. Pray that God would sanctify me in the truth of his word. Pray that I would be more conformed to the image of his son. Pray that I would be found faithful to him in the midst of my suffering, in the midst of my sickness, in the midst of my persecution. Pray that God would be glorified in that. Maybe we should spend a little bit more time praying for things like that rather than always praying for somebody to be physically healed. Watch this video clip from Jan Crouch. I'm not afraid to ask him anything. The other day, you see that bite right there? There was a mosquito hanging on there. And I thought it was a helicopter. You know, it just could have been. It could have been. It scared me. I just said, Jesus, heal it. And you know what? He did. So let me get this straight. Jan Crouch holds up her right arm, and she said, y'all see that little bite? And I don't know if you can see it in the, in the video and the screen from where you're sitting, but if you look real close, sure enough, on her arm where she's pointing, there's a little, there's a little mark there, a little bump there on her arm. And she said, I just prayed for Jesus to heal it. And you know what? He did. Well, if Jesus healed her of her mosquito bite, what in the blue-eyed world is it that she's pointing at? 
You see how dumb this is. But aside from that, that Jesus healed her of her mosquito bite? Really? Tell that to Rich. Tell that to Joni Erickson Tata. I'd like, to, I'd like to have Jan Crouch go to Joni Erickson Tata and look her in the eye. Tell Joni, yeah, God healed me of my mosquito bite. Glad I'm not you. You see how shallow this is? You see how superficial this is? This woman doesn't understand the gospel. According to the prosperity preachers, are you not healed? Well, it's probably because you're just not saved. Watch this from Benny Hinn. Now, ladies and gentlemen, hear this very clearly, please, and never forget. It's as easy to get healed as it is to get forgiven. It's as easy to receive physical healing as it is to receive forgiveness for sin. It's just as easy to get healed. Healing is as easy as salvation. Do not complicate what is simple. Say with me, it's as easy to get healed as it is to get forgiven. Healing should never be separate from salvation. Healing should never be separate from salvation. So you know what? If you're sick, you're probably not even a Christian. Probably not even saved. Again, one day, these false teachers will have to stand before a holy God. And they will have to give an account for what they are doing to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have one final video clip here. And um, just to set this clip up for you, this clip is going to begin with a few short assorted clips of Gloria Copeland. I want you to notice her callousness. I want you to notice her arrogance. I want you to notice how she all but just makes fun of and ridicules, mocks sick people, just mocks them. And then the clip is going to transition to a man named Garwin Dobbins. And Garwin Dobbins is a man who suffers from a disease, the likes of which I dare say nobody in this room, including myself, could even begin to imagine. And yet through almost incomprehensible suffering, Garwin Dobbins loves the Lord and seeks to glorify him. And I want you to notice the stark contrast between a wolf, false teacher, and a real child of God. That's a tradition that God is glorified when you're sick. Well, now, if you'll just think about it a minute, it would be very difficult for God to be glorified through you when you're sick. It is nonsense to say that sickness and disease works for good. It's a slander to talk evil about God. 
when he is totally good to say that it's God's will for you to be sick or he's the one that made you sick, that is pitiful. Or he's doing that to teach you something. You don't hear those things as much as you used to, I don't guess. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't go where you could hear them, so I don't know. You probably, they're still out there, I imagine. But if it was true that you learned through pain and suffering, we could just knock every little kid in the head before he went to school every morning <laughs> and see how he did that day. He'd come dragging in, his eyes rolling around, and, well, tell me what you learned today. I didn't learn anything. My head just hurt me all day long. That's about how stupid that is. So that God puts... Here's the, here's the doctrine that... that, uh, that people get hung up on. God gets glory from sickness and disease. Now that is, that just sounds so ridiculous to me now. I've heard the truth for so long. Because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and to them who are called according to his purpose. So traditional doctrine takes that, verse 28, doesn't look what's around it or what's behind it. And they say, well, you know, you know, all things work together for good. Here you've just had a car wreck, your leg's broken, your head's all bandaged up, and somebody comes on with the, in with the comforting words, you know all things work together for those that love God. And you say, uh-huh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I should have thought of that. <laughs> Does that make any sense at all? No. It is not Bible that God gets glory from your sickness and disease. And one of them is a gentleman named Garwin Dobbins, and he's here. Would you all welcome Garwin right here? Garwin Dobbins. Garwin, we love you. And... This season wouldn't be appropriate for us to tell of the goodness of the Lord if, if you weren't here helping us. Garwin, I want you to talk right now, Mike. Tell us, let me see if I can get this disease right, because it's big, long, a lot of vowels and consonants. Myositis, mm -hmm. esophagus, yes. progressiva. Right. Did I get all that right? You got it. There's only how many people in the world ever had this? As of right now, there's supposed to be 359 cases. All right. Tell us what this disease actually does just in a short amount of time, what it does to the person. It makes your muscle turn to bone. And it, uh, when it starts, it feels like two different people is twisting the inner core of your bone and uh, putting it over an open flame. You know what's, uh, what I admire about you so much is with this debilitating disease that you have is your spirit you have the spirit of a champion and in this uh, autumn time of thanksgiving is it possible to have something like this in your life and yet remain thankful oh yes tell us how, how are you thankful in times like these i'm very thankful for for life for health for eyes when i see <clears throat> that there's people that's Worse off than myself. There's people that don't have legs, don't have ears, don't have a healthy mind, or cannot have a sense of smell, 
And when I look about and see the color that God has spangled the sky with and the, and the rainbow, and when he put the stars in the sky, I know that he cares for me. Yeah. Now you sing a song that we're going to do right now. If the Lord doesn't choose to heal you on this earth, there will be a time shortly when you will be healed. In your mind, what do you see yourself doing when this body has been exchanged for your new body? What do you see yourself doing? We're going to run on streets of gold. And uh, number one person I want to meet is David because he has been a strength to me over the years and uh, I want to be as close to him like him in praise and worship wow isn't that incredible that he would uh, you know a lot of people might be bitter or angry at God and yet he remains a person of praise there's never been anybody I've ever met that is more encouraging than Garwin. Garwin, you sing a song called I Can Only Imagine. Mm -hmm. Can we help you? Yes. Or you just want to do this by yourself? Mm -hmm. I want you to. Okay, all right. Let's, uh, let's uh, stand you up here. Undo, undo his seatbelt. Watch for the airbags and all the... Here we go. I can only imagine.
salvation. has to imagine. Garwin's now with the Lord. His faith has been made sight. As I close, dear ones, I just want to close with the gospel. Has there been a time in your life when you have been convicted by God's Holy Spirit that you are a sinner, that you have broken God's laws. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all transgressors. Thou shalt not lie. We have all told lies. Most of us, hundreds of them. Thou shalt not steal. Almost all of us have taken something that does not belong to us. We're thieves. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Blasphemy. We've done that in word. We've done it in deed. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And don't let yourself off the hook too quickly. Jesus says if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery already in your heart. So if you've ever looked at another person with lust... You're an adulterer. Dear friends, go through the commandments of God. We have all broken them thousands of times over a course of a lifetime. And just like there's a penalty to be paid when we break laws here on earth, 
how much more so when we break the laws of the eternal God. But because we have sinned against the one who is eternal, the consequences of those sins are also eternal. And if we die in our sins, we will very rightly and very justly go to a very real place that the Bible calls hell. And it will never end. And let's not soft-pedal hell. You know, we hear a lot of times for preachers, well, if you die in your sins, if you die without Christ, you'll go into a Christless eternity. You'll be eternally separated from Christ, separated from God. That's not entirely true. Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 and 10, speaking of those who are dead in their trespasses and sin, they die and they go to the place of torment. It says they are tormented day and night in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The worst thing about hell, the most terrifying thing about hell is God because he is there in his mode of judgment. And his wrath will be poured out for all of eternity on the ungodly. And his wrath will never be quenched. His undiluted fury will be poured out on the lost for all of eternity and it will never ever end. Let's not soft pedal hell. People in hell are separated from God relationally. There's no relationship there. There's no love exchange. There's no fellowship there. But judicially, they will be in the presence of God in his mode of judgment forever. And that, that is reality. That is what we deserve. That's what you deserve. That's what I deserve. That's the bad news. But there is good news. And the good news of the gospel is this, is that God loves you. God loves you. And he has made a way for you to escape his wrath. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth. And Jesus lived a perfect life. He never broke any of the laws of God. He was perfect. He was the lamb without blemish. And Jesus willingly laid down his life on the cross. His life was not taken. He gave it. He gave his life on the cross. And Jesus bore the wrath of God. He bore the wrath of God so that you and I would not have to. He satisfied God's wrath. And the only way to be saved is to repent of sins turn from sins and place your trust in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is not of works. There is nothing that we can do to earn God's favor. Salvation is a gift that must be received. It is, it is received by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And genuine salvation does encompass genuine repentance. Jesus says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. 
How do you know if you've repented? You know, for the longest time, for the longest time, as, as a false convert myself, I didn't understand repentance. Because it seemed to me that there was a massive contradiction inherent within the gospel itself. Because on the one hand, I understood that salvation is, is not of works. I understood that. That made sense to me. You can't work your way into heaven. You can't help enough little old ladies across the street to earn God's favor. I got that. But then I would hear, in order to be saved, you had to repent, which was doing something. You either had to stop doing what you have been doing but shouldn't have been doing, or you start doing what you haven't been doing but should have been doing. And so it seemed like there was a contradiction. That was a work to me. It's something you did. And so how on the one hand can you say that salvation is not of works, but on the other hand you turn around and say in order to be saved you've got to work. You've got to repent. But there is no contradiction in the gospel. And here's why there's not. Because genuine repentance is in and of itself granted by God. God grants repentance. We can't repent on our own. We can't do it. God must grant it. Acts chapter 11, verse 17. Acts chapter 5, verses 30 and 31. 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verses 24, 25. Speaks of God granting repentance. Genuine repentance is in and of itself granted by God. And so how do you know if you've repented? How do you know? Well, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Do I have a godly sorrow over my sin? Has there, has there been a time when I've come to a place of godly sorrow over sin? 2 Corinthians chapter 7 speaks of two kinds of sorrow over sin. The first kind is a worldly sorrow. And a worldly sorrow leads to death. What is a worldly sorrow? A guilty conscience. Self-preservation. What would happen to me if my sin were exposed? What would happen to me if my sin were discovered and people found out? What would be the consequences to me? And we try to cover up our sin because we're worried about what would happen to us. That's a worldly sorrow. And the Apostle Paul says that leads to death. But there is a godly sorrow over sin. And a godly sorrow over sin is when we understand that our sin is first and foremost against God, His person, and we grieve over our sin because we understand that our sin grieves God. And we do not want to grieve Him. And so we desire to turn from sin because we do not want to grieve God. That's a godly sorrow over sin. And it is good and it is right to fear God's wrath. That's healthy. We should fear God's wrath. But just as much as we want to escape the wrath of God, just as much as we want to escape hell, we should also want to escape our sin. We should also want freedom from our sin, a desire to turn from sin. Do you have that godly sorrow? Do you grieve over your sin because you understand first and foremost that your sin grieves God? Do you desire to turn from sin? I'm not preaching sinless perfection, okay? Salvation is not perfection, it's direction. Which direction are you going? 
And it's not that a Christian doesn't stumble into sin. A Christian can and does stumble into sin, but a Christian does not swim in it. A Christian does not enjoy it. A Christian does not look for opportunities to sin. A Christian desires to turn from sin. Do you have that godly desire, that godly sorrow over sin? Do you have a love for the brethren? Do you have a desire to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Has there been a change in your life? Are your affections new? These are the hallmarks of a genuine believer. These are the hallmarks of someone who has been regenerated by God's Holy Spirit. And if you are not certain of where you are in your relationship with God, if you are not certain that you have passed from death to life, if you're not certain that you have genuinely repented, examine yourself. Do I see these things in my life? Has there been a change? Do I have a godly sorrow over my sin? Do I desire to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Christ? Do I desire to turn from sin? Not that I'm perfect, not that I won't stumble into sin, but do I desire, is there, have I turned, is there an increasing pattern of, of holiness in my life? That's what a Christian looks like. And so if you're not certain that you have truly repented of sins, I would encourage you to get real honest before God. Confess your sins to him and cry out to him and ask him to grant you repentance. Ask him to grant you repentance and you cry out to God. Jesus says, the one who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. If you come to Christ in genuine godly sorrow over your sin, he will not cast you away. Turn from sin. Place your trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. There is salvation in no one else. Let's close in a word of prayer.